Good day and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is February 10th, 2017. Joining us in our virtual studio is Erica, myself, Tiffany, Doug, Elliot, Jonathan, and we have a special guest today, Dr. Carderas. He likes to be referred to as Dr. K. Welcome, Dr. K. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) So Dr. Carderas has a PhD and is a psychotherapist, addiction expert, executive director of the Dunes in East Hampton, New York, one of the top rehabs in the country. You're also founder of the Hamptons Discovery, an adolescent treatment program. Mm -hmm. He's an author of two books, How Plato and Pythagoras Can Save Your Life, published in 2011, and his newest book, Glow Kids, published in 2016, and I apologize, I forgot the rest of the name of your book in that moment, but um, welcome to the show, and please give us a little bit of background on uh, yourself and what brought you to this Glow Kids phenomenon, what inspired you to write this book last year? Well, I think being a, a human being living on the planet in the uh, 21st century first was my first uh, entry point in visually seeing that uh, we were going through a shift in our culture with uh, our digital technologies and how children were experiencing um, their external world. But professionally, I'm an addiction psychologist, and I, I was uh, a clinical professor at Stony Brook University teaching addiction and the neurophysiology of addiction. And in my private practice, I was also, over the last 15 years, I've worked with over a 1,000 teenagers. And my first aha moment was about 10 years ago when I worked with a young man who had been uh, a compulsive video gamer. And he had been playing a game called World of Warcraft for about 10 to 12 hours a day. Mm. And when he was referred to me in my office, he was in a full-blown state of psychosis. And which, which later I came to understand is what's known as game transfer phenomenon or what some people also call video game psychosis. Essentially, he was in the matrix and, and didn't know if he was still in the game or out of the game. He was blinking in very, uh, hard in my office looking around. And I kept asking him if he knew where he was. Do you know where you are? And after about a minute or so, he said to me, are we still in the game? And, uh, and that young man had to be hospitalized psychiatrically for a month. Unfortunately, was given antipsychotic medications for several weeks. Um, and what struck me was that this young man had no prior history of mental illness, had none of the underlying vulnerabilities that we might associate with uh, a young person having a psychotic break, and had what an episode of what's called derealization. You don't know what's real and what's not, which we used to associate with substances, a substance-induced sterilization episode, a bad acid trip used to lead to what that man was experiencing. And that was my aha moment where I began to realize that this was some pretty powerful, mind-altering experiences that some of our young people were having. And that was the beginning of my beginning to work with clinically and research uh, some of these experiences. Yeah, you say in your book that... um 97% of all American children ages 2 through 17 play video games. So 64 million kids. 
Right. And right. why mean, is it they're so attracted to it? I mean, right. So, so, so video, video games are dopaminergic. And what that means is that video games raise dopamine levels. And dopamine is the neurotransmitter that is the most closely associated with addiction. It's that feel good neurotransmitter that a person feels when they engage or ingest a substance that makes them feel good. So they did a study back in 1998 by Dr. Cope. And they measured how dopamine activating certain substances and experiences were. And so things like chocolate raise dopamine levels 50%. Uh, a sexual experience raises dopamine levels 100%. And we found that 1998 video games raised dopamine levels 100%. They were as dopamine activating as a sexual experience. So playing a video game is, is essentially the equivalent of a, of a, I call it a digital orgasm in the brain of a child. The, pro- the problem is a child doesn't have the neurological apparatus, developed frontal cortex, to have that impulse control because the frontal cortex doesn't fully develop until we're, we're in our early 20s, which is why teenagers tend to do impulsive things like bungee jump and have unprotected sex. So we're giving a highly stimulating, dopamine-activating experience to infants and children who don't have the braking mechanism to moderate that usage. And that's the problem in a nutshell. Yeah, you talk about how also it's um, like children are living in an archetypical desert. So uh, it's like the digital version of uh, Campbell's Hero's Journey, right? They're looking for, uh, they're misstarved looking for a deeper meaning or a connection or a purpose. And uh, that's right. why the matrix appeals to them. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Carl Jung talked about in the 1940s, he talked about the fact that we were experiencing a poverty of symbols and a poverty of meaning. And again, this is back in the 1940s. So we've suffered an iconoclasm where we've stripped away a lot of the meaning-making archetypes of our world, uh, things that traditionally contained archetypes, everything from fairy tales to religious symbols to uh, social contexts. Have, uh, and Jung used this phrase, Carl Jung used the phrase demystified. Science has demystified a lot of the world. But the problem is, from a psychological standpoint, we need those archetypes. They're, they're so, uh, satisfying. Uh, we need the hero's journey. We need our archetypal figures. And so in this archetypal desert where we're told that there's no Santa Claus, there's no God, there's no, um, there's no tooth fairy. Um, there's, I, and I've worked with kids who are starved for that. So when, and the game industry knows that. So they create games that are rife with, archetypal experiences essentially most video games are expressions of a hero's journey uh, the movie avatar uh, was so popular because again it was also a hero's journey it was it was a, a, a young person who had to undergo a rite of passage overcome certain obstacles and then reach what's called an apotheosis where they become sort of closer to divinity through these um, experiences and if you look at most video games, that's what they are. So I've worked with a lot of young people who are starved for those kinds of experiences and experience that archetypal mythological sense of purpose through the game. And so in that sense, it's a, it serves a very real need 
but it does it unfortunately in a very kind of violent and uh, addictive uh, framework. Yeah, Dr. K, I had a, I had a question about that um, because uh, you mentioned that the 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 kind of the video game producers are, are aware of this, and I, I, I honestly had to, to to wonder about this, and I kind of looked into it a little bit about um, how video game designers actually go about uh, designing their games. And it seems like they actually are purposely putting in a lot of, like, uh, using a lot of different techniques, like stuff that BF Skinner came up with, like, you know, generations ago or a generation ago, um, to kind of, like, to encourage this kind of addictive, um, dopamine spiking behavior. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, it's no accident that games are as addicting as they are. You know, it's funny. About a month ago, I just got an APA, uh, the American Psychological Association, sometimes will randomly send psychologists, you know, uh, classified emails for job opportunities. And I got one of them was emailed to me and it was the gaming industry was looking to hire, uh, the top behavioral psychologists and, you know, contact. Huh. And, and so what you're referring to the BF Skinner, uh, is most video games who are, which are reward based have the same type of reward uh, schedule as a slot machine, which is called the variable reward schedule. Mm. And, and because that's the most compulsing and addicting reward schedule. So if you talk to any retiree who plays, you know, the one armed bandit, you know, you know that <laughs> you don't get, you don't get rewarded every time and you don't re- get rewarded every third time, but it's a variable ratio. So you don't know when you're going to get when you're going to hit the jackpot. So you keep putting coin after coin in because you're thinking the next, you know, pull of the uh, one-armed bandit is going to get you that gold. Um, mm-hmm. Games are very much like that. They have a variable reward ratio, Minecraft in particular, where you're supposed to find the ores under random uh, elements. Uh, you don't know which strike of the pickaxe is going to reward you with some of these desired ores. And so children will literally keep playing for hours and sometimes days because they're, they have been manipulated very consciously by these uh, gaming industry designers. The other part that they do that's very, I think, uh, I'll use it because I'm a parent, I think it's evil. Um, <laughs> they, they, you know, because this idea of shooting fish in a barrel with using our most innocent, you know, our, our vulnerable children to sort of manipulate with such tactics, they, they'll hire adolescent beta testers to beta test the game. So not only do they want the game to be as dopamine activating, not only do they want the game to be as um, the reward ratio to be as compulsing, but what they do is they, they when they beta test a, game, a new game with teenagers, and usually they give them an Amazon gift card for $100, and that's kind of the, the quid pro quo that they do for these gamers, they, uh, they hook them up to galvanic skin responses at the blood pressure gauges, and what they're measuring is they're measuring their excitability level and they're the, essentially the, the adrenaline surge of the game. And so if the gamer's blood pressure doesn't spike to 180 over 140 within two minutes of playing the game, they go back to tweak the game to make it more, more adrenaline surging. The reason why they do that, and I don't, I don't want to get too complicated about it, but there's, there's a phenomenon called the HPA axis, which is our hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And that's essentially our fight or flight response. Um, if I get chased by a dog or if a bus almost hits me, I have an adrenaline surge and that activates my HPA axis. So evolutionarily, we were meant to go into fight or flight response for brief moments of, 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 of emergency. What, what hyper stimulating, let's, let's say first person shooter games do is they put the young person into that fight or flight state for 
hour after hour after hour after hour. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, what that happens is it changes the thermostat of that person's adrenal system. And so what you have then, if you're in that fight or flight state for weeks or months or years playing hour after hour, you're, you become very, uh, what's called mood dysregulated. So what that looks like is it could look like ADHD, it could look like a, a explosive behavior, but it looks like a very nervous, reactive, uh, hypervigilant child because they've been too hyperstimulated and their adrenal thermostat, uh, can't go back to baseline simply. I mean, I'll, I'll give us an example. If any of us as adults watched a very adrenaline surging movie, you know, I, in my book, I use the example like Liam Neeson movies, Taken, you know, like a real car chase kind of movie. Um, and we get our adrenaline rushing. It's really hard to watch that movie for two hours and then five minutes later, sit down calmly and read a book, you know, read War and Peace after you've had your adrenaline surging. And that's after a two hour movie. Now picture yourself as a nine or 10 year old child who's doing this for 10 hours. And then you're asking the child to sit quietly in the classroom. Well, now they're going to look mm-hmm. like they're hyperactive and then they're going to get referred to uh, potentially a psychiatrist. And then they might get put on, unfortunately, they're going to get put on something like Ritalin or something to address the hyperactivity when what's really might be causing that hyperactivity might be the hyperstimulation of their digital experiences. So it, it's a complex issue that we're doing a lot of impact on some of our most vulnerable uh, segment of our society. Yeah. Dr. Cardes, you had mentioned the, the story at the beginning about the young man who had a uh, psychotic break. Right. Now, uh, obviously, you know, we look around and we see uh, all of the children that are playing video games are not having psychotic breaks. What do you think is the uh, the percentage of these very extreme cases that's happening? And uh, 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 to, to add to that, um, what do you think is the kind of most damaging uh, side effect of the the over gaming of of children is it uh, damaging, you know, learning capabilities or you know mm-hmm. the ability to interact with society? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Right. So if we look at some of these effects on the continuum and at the extreme end of that continuum, we will say are the the extreme end of the, the full blown psychotic episodes that like the, that young man that I talked about. Uh, by the way, I'm convinced Adam Lanza, you know, the Newtown massacre shooter. I'm, I, I read the whole case file. I've read the Connecticut Attorney General's report. Um, I'm, I'm entirely convinced that he also was in the thrall of a uh, video game psychotic episode. Um, huh. uh, just, just by, just to uh, go up on that for one minute. Um, Adam Lanza had been pulled out of school. Now he had underlying vulnerabilities. He was, he had very severe OCD and he was on the spectrum and spectrum children already suffer from a lack of emotional empathy. And, uh, and so his mother pulled him out of school and essentially he went into a video game bunker where that's all he did, essentially all of his working hours. And when the FBI went back and audited his gaming profile, he was playing uh, a couple of very violent first-person shooter games. And one of which that he was mostly playing was uh, 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 Modern Warfare 2. And in Modern Warfare mm-hmm. 2, you're going into an airport and you're shooting civilians, including women and children, and he was documented as having 25,000 headshots um, in the couple of months before the Newtown shooting. Uh, in, in, modern war, in Modern Warfare 2, which is a very hyper-realistic game, when you shoot your victims in the airport, they're crawling away in their own blood, and then you finish them off as they're crawling away in their blood. 
Uh, he was also playing a game called School Shooter. And there's actually a game out there called School Shooter where you go from classroom to classroom shooting children. Um, by the way, there also happens to be a game called Columbine. Uh, just, you know, so it, it's, it's, these are First Amendment issues where how these games can even be allowed to be made. But that's what he was playing. And um, I'm entirely convinced that he had a full-blown psychotic break, that he was thought he was in the game experience when he did those shootings. And, and the reason why I say that is uh, a couple of reasons in addition to what I already said. But one of the FBI investigators said um, that he that he was trying to be high score in the video game because they found in his bedroom a uh, spreadsheet that had every serial killer in the United States with a point total next to them. And 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 the reason why the this one investigator felt that they chose the elementary school is because he felt that it was fish in a barrel that he'd be able to get high score to be the top scorer on the game. The other reason why the investigator felt that he was in the video game experience was that he didn't allow himself to get shot by the police and he shot himself when he was uh, circled. Uh, In in video game culture, if you let yourself be shot, you lose your point total. But if you kill yourself, you you hold on to your points. Um, So, so, so if we, if we, if we, assume, or even, uh, let's say for argument's sake, that Adam Lanza and the young man that I worked with at the extreme end of that continuum, what are the quote-unquote impacts on normal kids with blurring reality? Well, Mark Griffiths, Dr. Mark Griffiths and uh, Dr. Rebecca DeGortari, they were the ones that coined the phrase game transfer phenomenon. And game transfer phenomenon is uh, are essentially these reality blurring effects that we were talking about. And they did a study with 1,800 gamers and all of their participants had experienced some level of game transfer phenomenon. Now, it wasn't severe enough where they were going to go shoot up a school, but all of them to some degree had moments where they would hear aspects of the game hours or days after the game is shut off, or they would see in their visual field uh, parts of the game. Um, years ago, this was, this was called the Tetris effect. Harvard did a study on, I don't know, those of you that are old enough to remember the game Tetris. But Tetris yeah. was a really pretty pretty simple game, right? And there were these little square Tetraminos that used to fall down uh, down the screen. And what they discovered with the Tetris effect, they found that people would see those squares uh, in, in their dreams or days and weeks after they stopped playing. Um, it, it seemed that the intensity of the visual, uh, this visual intensity of some of these screen effects had a searing effect on the person's psyche and that would have an imprinting effect that could be pretty powerful. Now, when Harvard did that Tetris effect study, these were college-aged students. These were, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. The problem with very reality-blurring video games for 7- and 8-year-olds is that developmentally, they're just developing their sense of what psychologists call reality testing. Uh, A 7- or 8-year-old is just beginning to understand his external world as being real and his internal world of his own mind being not real. Um, if in that developmental stage you're, you're exposing them to not just an immersive hyper real uh, video game, but now we're talking about uh, three dimensional and, and we're talking about augmented reality. We're talking about Pokemon. We're talking about consciously reality blurring effects on young people that aren't developmentally ready to have the reality blurred to such a significant degree. So I've seen quote unquote normal kids who have said to me, I can't get the game out of my head. 
I'm working with a young man now who's a 19-year-old University of Houston, a former All-American wrestler. And he was playing a game, not a first-person shooter game, but an archetypal game called RuneCraft. And he's been in the rehab for three months. And it's three months later, and he says to me, Dr. Cardaris, I can't get the game, the images of the screen, out of my mind. I see them in my sleep. I see them in my waking moments. And this was a quote-unquote normal young guy. Um, so these reality-blurring effects are significant and are real. Uh, do I think that they're the most damaging part of, I think, the digital landscape? I think the most damaging part are the uh, the, the attentional impacts. You know, kids that are getting hyper-stimulated uh, developmentally don't develop their ability to attend and to focus as much as prior generations have been able to. So we're seeing an epidemic of ADHD, uh, a 50% spike over the last 10 years of ADHD, which I think is a direct byproduct of kids getting hyper-stimulated uh, when they should be developing their hand-eye coordination and their ability to stay focused. They're getting hyper-stimulated and need to keep getting stimulated or else they get easily distracted. Um, so those are significant impacts. The socialization effect is a significant impact. Uh, there's a whole continuum of impacts that even quote-unquote uh, well-adjusted children seem to be suffering from. Well, Dr. K, I had a question, too, because I know parents who have very young children, like in this particular case, and I'm thinking of it's a two-year-old boy or maybe even before that. He has, well, he uses his mother's tablet and you know his grandmother's cell phone to play little games. And you talked about how it affects uh, teenagers and kids that are seven to eight years old. But what about even younger, like toddler age, like everywhere they go, like in the car, they have a tablet with them and they're just playing a game or whatever. They can't really articulate what they think about the game or what's going on. What kind of effects have you seen or have you read about or um, studied the research about toddlers using this kind of technology? The most important thing that an infant or a toddler needs to be doing to to fully maximize their their cognitive and their intellectual abilities is to use their active imagination. That's what really builds their neurosynaptic muscles. You know, when uh, a kid picks up a stick and plays make-believe with it, um, they're using their active imagination, uh, co-playing with other kids and using... Uh, those are very significantly developmentally appropriate uh, activities. What we're effectively doing is we're robbing an entire generation of their imagination because we're programming the imagery into their minds. And so what, when that two-year-old who's, who's getting those images force-fed into his visual or her visual uh, center, um, they're not imagining or visualizing or processing their, their visual landscape. They're not picking up... For example, if a three-year-old is playing with Lego, the most wonderful thing that they could be doing is they start creating and building and imagining and putting hand-eye coordination, which is neurosynaptic and frontal cortex developing, and they're creating, they're imagining. What we're doing to these children is we're programming them, is we're passively showing them images, which they don't then have to use any mental muscle to imagine. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll give you a, a pop culture example, which I always found very powerful. Graham Nash from Crosby, Stills, and Nash, way back when, gave a quote after MTV had first exploded onto the scene in the mid-'80s with music videos, right? And every band at that time was making music videos. 
And Graham Nash said that we'll never make a music video because we don't want to program our listener with what they visualize when they hear our music. We want them to create their own music video in their own minds. Um, and, and I thought about that because, and I'll ask you and anybody listening to do this experiment. Um, if you think of a song that you've never seen the music video for, what comes to mind? And for all of us, you know, if, if I think of a song from my, you know, from my youth, uh, you know, imagery comes up that's very personal. But if I think of a song that I've seen the music video for, the video pops into my head. I can't mm-hmm. help it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it kind of jumps in there. That's what we're doing times a thousand to these infants. We're programming imagery into their minds and, and robbing them of their ability to create their own interior landscape. And, and, and people don't factor that in. People don't factor in how important this idea of active imagination is, which is, by the way, why people like Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, um, Larry Page, and Sergey Brin and Google, none of these uh, creative, uh, digitally creative geniuses had been exposed to computer before the age of 13. Um, there were uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin were Montessori students who had no technology in their schools. Um, the same thing with Steve Jobs, uh, you know, who didn't allow his own kids to have iPads. Uh, there's a whole battle going on right now, by the way, it's, uh, at the uh, at, uh, Los Altos, where there's a lot of Silicon Valley engineers who are, A, not only taking their kids out of uh, schools that have digital devices and putting them into, into the uh, Los Altos Waldorf School, because the people inventing the digital world know the impact that it has, the negative impact that it has on the developing brain of an infant. So when I see a two-year-old in a, in a crib, you know, I shudder, you know, and again, these are, you know, these are well-intentioned parents. I, I don't think any parent willingly does anything that they think is damaging to their child, but they've been lied to. They've been conned by a, a tech industry that has manipulated them into thinking they've used certain catchphrases like educational uh, to to anesthetize these parents into believing the false narrative that they're somehow helping enhance their infant's learning when just the opposite is true. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was reading uh, recently actually about um, kids who, uh, like infants who weren't able to use building blocks anymore. You know, they could yeah. swipe a screen, but that they actually like when, when they had to do something as simple as building with like, it's something that you think of kids just naturally do. Like they'll take blocks and start building something with it. It's like teachers are starting to notice that these kids or maybe even parents are noticing that they, that they no longer kind of have the ability to do that. That, that, that's a perfect example. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I can tell you anecdotally with a thousand kids that I've worked with each generation, each cohort coming up the shoot, it seemed like almost year by year. The kids were less imaginative, less curious. That's the one thing that I, you know, I, I use that phrase. They became less interesting and less interested. Their sense yeah. of natural awe seemed to have been taken over because they, they were perpetually stimulated from cradle to adolescence. And so this sense of looking up at the night sky and saying, gee, I wonder what's out there. Or, gee, you know, Plato talked about all philosophy begins with a sense of wonder. But what we're, what we're finding out is that these children have uh, a lot of them I, again that, that I've worked with don't have that natural curiosity anymore. What they have is an addictive thirst to be stimulated, but they don't have an, that sort of natural gee whiz, gee, I wonder how kind of uh, aspect. That's what we're robbing them of. And 
And this false narrative of, uh, you know, it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, tablets, they, they, they're, they've even sold the narrative that it could be a surrogate for, um, for, uh, interpersonal experiences. Um, I, disgustingly, I heard, uh, actually I was reading just last month that, uh, I forget which hospital, uh, what city it was, but that the NICUs in a particular American city were beginning to give infants in the NICU in the neonatal intensive care unit a tablet so they could see their mother on the screen oh, and form a bond with her through the screen. And what we know is that they've done research where they, they've shown it that, that children can't learn language from a digital model, that they've used digital uh, software with iPads and children for whatever reason can't learn language and phonetics through the digital screen, even though you would think, well, it's the same sounds that are being formed, but there's something about needing the, the actual physical human being. They found that birds, uh, baby birds can't mimic, uh, digitally recorded, uh, bird sounds. They, they have, it has to be a live bird for them to model the, the sounds for them to be able to mimic it. So there's a very important aspect of the human connection. And when we start dropping tablets into cribs, we're doing a lot of damage and, and we're not going to really see the full results of that till 20, 30 years from now, unfortunately. Yeah, I shudder to think of what that would look like. But I noticed that what you mentioned about kids just being uninteresting and not curious. I mean, there was a time where you would go to a family gathering and, you know, you talk to the kids and it'd be so fun and interesting just because of the funny things that they would say. But now they all have their heads shoved into a tablet or playing on a phone. Uh, right. Like, this was some years ago, a little cousin of mine, she was probably seven or eight at the time, and she had these pieces of paper. We cut up some pieces of paper, and we were like, going to play a game. I thought it was going to be a card game, so I was going to let her like make up the card game. But she just had me tap on the pieces of paper, and like I was thinking... You know, this is the game. She's like, tap this one. Okay, now tap this one. Now tap this one. And that was the game to her. And I was thinking, oh, my God, that is just so sad. So sad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the vibe. You know, it goes back to um, what we're saying about some of the serum effect and what's happening. I had um, a child of uh, a friend of my wife's who... um, you know, he woke up, you know, he couldn't get Minecraft out of his mind. And, and there, and by the way, Gortari and Griffiths, when they did the game transfer phenomenon study, there were six and seven year olds that were beginning to see the real world in cube form. They were seeing trees in the shape of the Minecraft cubes. It was beginning Jeez. to shape how they perceived the world. And again, the, these were fairly common. These were much more common than most people experienced. Again, you know, we might hear about the Adam Lanzas or, or the, the young man that I had that got hospitalized. But there's almost every gamer that I've spoken to has had experiences of, oh, yeah, yeah, there were times when I couldn't get that voice out of my head. That was like, you know, one of the command voices from the game or 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 uh, some visual aspect of the game. And, and so there's there's that reality blurring and then there's that creativity dampening you know, that we've talked about. And so what are we doing? And it's all under the banner of educational. You know, that's, that's, that's the mission statement. And, and, and I've known, I've talked to school administrators and principals and superintendents and, and they all mouth the company line. Uh, well, these are educational. And then when you ask them to prove it, okay, well, show me the research. Show me the research that a five year old with a tablet is going to have better educational outcomes when they're in middle school or high school 
you get a, a, a basic version of humana, humana, humana. And then, <laughs> so you ask them, so it's educational because who says it's educational? The technology rep who's come to your school and sold you a $300 million uh, software package and hardware package is told it's educational. The box says that it's educational. Um, that's why we've bought this false narrative. Um, so that's kind of my mission statement is to really raise awareness and to show as much of the research as I can about the clinically uh, damaging aspects of some of this technology and, and to really call to task some of, you know, uh, the, the key gatekeepers of our society We've allowed, I call them digital Trojan horses. We've allowed these digital Trojan horses into our homes and into our classrooms. And, and out of this Trojan horse has come ADHD, addiction, depression, uh, social interpersonal dampening effects, psychosis, uh, all under the pretense of somehow connectivity or educational. Uh, and it's all a scam, essentially. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say it's entirely a scam because there is obviously benefit for technology, but, uh, but my whole narrative is, is age appropriate. Um, yeah. car, car, cars are wonderful, but you don't let, you don't let a seven year old drive a car. Um, so in, in the same vein, we talk about helping the child fully develop neurologically so that they're, you know, and Joseph Chilton Pierce, uh, seminal, uh, mind when it comes to education development talked about this as well let the child of the brain fully develop in the most natural and the most um creative way possible and then once that developed brain has reached maturity then you can access technology or launch it to launch it into the stratosphere but to preempt that process and to drop technology too early into the developmental curve uh is developmentally stunting and damaging and that's what people are beginning to realize now. They're just beginning to wake up to that as we start seeing some of these um, effects. Yeah, in your book you talk about, and we've been talking about here, this real experiences versus digital experiences. And um, speaking yeah. of Joseph Chilton Pierce, can you share some of the research he did about, uh, you know, the, the the ability to distinguish sounds and colors? and um, Right. Right. There was that was the uh, he quoted some of the research from the University of Tübingen in uh, Germany. And in the, in the early 60s, they were beginning to realize it was at that university that each cohort that was coming up to the university seemed like they were sensorially a little bit more uh, dampened, they, that, that they couldn't hear and perceive as well. And, and that was after the onset of television um, and and it. And, and the working hypothesis was that maybe these screen technologies were having this sort of desensitizing effect on our senses. And so what they did at the University of Tumbingen over a period of decades, they measured the sensory acuity of both sound and color uh, over the next, I believe it was a 20 year longitudinal study. And they essentially found that our, we were losing our ability to perceive uh, sight and color, I'm sorry, color and sound. Uh, to the magnitude of 1% a year. And so, just by way of an example, uh, the average person in Germany in the late 1960s was able to perceive roughly 300 shades of red. And by the 1980s, it was about 150 shades of red. And by the 1990s, it became about 75 shades of red. Um, and, and that is, as we start, as we kept getting bombarded by this hyper-stimulating 
let's call it a, a visual or digital world. I mean, our world has become so flashing and so loud and so um, that desensitization that we're going to eventually reach a point where we're going to uh, barely be able to perceive any nuances of sight and sound. Uh, the other person that Pierce quoted was uh, Marsha McCulloch. And Marsha McCulloch was an anthropologist that studied indigenous cultures. And she had found that indigenous kids, you know, what we used to dismissively call the poor primitives, the poor primitives had 30% uh, uh, higher sensory acuity. Um, these kids were more tuned into their environmental sights and sounds to a degree of 30%. Additionally, Marsha McCulloch found that these quote unquote primitives who had been, you know, playing with sticks and doing all the active imagination things that I talked about earlier, when they were put into a quote unquote modern educational setting, they were able to learn better at a magnitude of times two of the, the modern uh, children who were raised in, in uh, industrialized society. Uh, it, it seemed that their brains were more powerful. It seems like they were able to learn better because they were been raised in, a, in what we would consider a more primitive way, yet their brains were, were more sponge-like, more able to learn, more able to absorb. Um, to me, these are very powerful and telling studies that, that that are clues as to some of the damages that we're doing with this this bombardment to uh to this whole generation that's um that's absolutely fascinating um i i actually work in a, a school for children with special needs and right. um it's it's quite a lot different from when i was at school as a child um now it, within the class, as you were saying, uh, they seem to have really integrated these these tablet <coughs> devices, and it's it's used as almost like um, it, you know it's so common that we'll we'll get the tablets out, and that is how they will learn the lesson essentially, yeah. and um, and it's it, it's really quite disturbing um, considering all of this information, and it really makes me wonder um, how much of these because some of these children they've been labeled with things like adhd and they're right. on the autistic spectrum or they've been lab they've been given another sort of label but it right. really makes me wonder how much of this is actually due to this constant um stimulating effect of these right. these types of games and devices right. like um when, when i when i speak to the children they um you know they a lot of them do they play minecraft for instance and mm -hmm. and and it's a constant thing and it's i just find it so disturbing <laughs> yeah and, and yeah digital lego they've sold it as digital lego even though it's the furthest thing from because you don't you have no hand eye it's just again well so exactly what you're saying is is the there's the rub right you you have a child who has underlying vulnerability of ADHD and yet you're giving that child this sort of hyper-stimulating uh, device, which a lot of us theorize is causing the ADHD, and so you're perpetuating that vicious cycle. And, and what some people think is, well, my ADHD child seems to be so engaged in front of the screen, their ability to focus seems wonderful when they're in front of the screen. Well, it was a wonderful New York Times article a couple of years back, focused on screens and on nothing else, um, and, and that was written by an NYU uh, professor who talked about that, that if the ADHD child, when they're focusing on the screen, that's not really attention. They're getting these, these bursts of stimulation that's kind of, you know, it's kind of bells and whistles to keep them engaged, but that's not really engaging the child in a meaningful way. That's just kind of distracting them. Um, the, 
As the other vulnerable population that you mentioned, autistic, I've worked a lot with autistic children. Now, I will say that perhaps the only uh, aspect of technology that can be useful with these with spectrum children is nonverbal autistic children to communicate with a keypad. In that sense, that's one of the few and limited uses of technology that can be beneficial, in my opinion, my humble opinion. Mm. But but when it's a high functioning or an Asperger's or a fairly high functioning uh, spectrum child, what they need is social interaction, social skills training is is the is the panacea for for the spectrum. So when you give those children uh, a socially a device that robs them of their social interaction, you're 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 exacerbating the problem so significantly. Um, I was talking to a school superintendent uh, a few months back, and she had an autistic son who was about eight years old a while back, and and they wanted to give him uh, a tablet. And she had an evolved psychiatrist who said, take that tablet away from that boy as quickly as you can. And she said it was hmm. the best thing that she ever did because she took the tablet away, and now her son has graduated from college, and it's 15 years later, and he essentially developed into a normal boy. And she said to me, I can swear to you that if he kept that tablet, the outcome would have been drastically different than the positive outcome we had because we took away that tablet. I can also refer you to one other powerful uh, example regarding exactly what you just said about this, the, uh, you know, is the device causing some of these disorders. Uh, Victoria Dunkley is an adolescent psychiatrist who's also written a book called Resetting Your Child's Brain. And she's also worked with over a thousand young people with various underlying vulnerabilities over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. She will not diagnose or prescribe uh, anything to a child or an adolescent until they've gone through a six week digital detox. Um, because she wants to see what's, what role is the, is the, is their media exposure playing? And what she has said is that in seven, roughly 70% of the time, the symptoms go away when the child is a digital detox. So when she has a child that's brought in with ADHD, with a conduct disorder, with uh, some kind of mood dysregulation, and they allow their systems to recalibrate or to go back to baseline by essentially detoxing off of this stimulant, uh, the symptoms more often than not go away. And that's enough. Rather than prescribing more medications to you know, treat the symptoms, she tries to uh, to do as a rule out, is this potentially a byproduct of their digital exposure? And what she's seeing is that it is, including, uh, like I said, attentional effects, even spectrum effects. She sees children that were presenting as having spectrum disorders who a lot of their spectrum uh, symptomology either got entirely went away or got very much uh, minimized with the uh, taking away wow. of any electronic devices. Uh, so we're getting powerful bits of information that is really can help guide us. And it, you know, we're all beginning to sort of unify as a voice to educate parents, to just raise some awareness. So at least parents have the information to begin to make some of these choices for themselves and, 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 and see that what they're being told isn't always accurate from the schools or from their pediatricians. Dr. K, I have a question that, uh, it might be a little bit more on the speculative side of things, but I'm curious what you think. Um, so one of our chatters brought up the idea that uh, the powers that be, so to speak, uh, you know, are contributing to creating a, a generation of, uh, of dumbed-down uh, citizens, um, right. people who are more robotic, uh, you know, more right. 
right. easily controlled workers, that kind of thing. We've done on this show in the past, we've discussed a number of times the education system uh, in the West, which is not speculative that that was actually created with the intention of creating more uh, complacent, easily controlled uh, workers right. in, in the system. How, how much do you think that that's a function of this phenomena as opposed to uh, what might just be like a an unfortunate accident, like a combination of a, 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 a high profit margin and, uh, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. a, a highly advancing technical industry where this might just be an accidental byproduct of that? Or do you think that there are, you know, maybe some more nefarious things under the surface? I know that's speculative, yeah. but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, so... In my book, I talk about uh, Neil Postman. Neil Postman was uh, a pretty visionary uh, professor at NYU in, in the mid-'80s. And Neil Postman wrote a book in 1985 called Amusing to Death. And, and, and he, at that point, was analogizing the new digital media. And back in 1985, was television, let's keep in mind, as being analogous to SOMA in Brave New World and keeping the masses sedated, basically stupefying the masses to be and he did talk about a political context that it was a form of mass sedation, uh, you know, uh, digital, uh, a digital opiate to the masses. Um, I can tell you that as an addictions professor, uh, we know that during slavery times, uh, slave masters used to give a bottle of moonshine to young male black slaves every Saturday. And it wasn't a reward. It was to keep them drunk and, and, and compliant and uh, not able to see sort of the, the landscape of what of the the cage that they were being kept in. Um, so I, I do think that there is some uh, agenda to this. I, I don't think it's just an unfortunate, purely an unfortunate byproduct of greed, although there is that. Um, look, Rupert Murdoch invested $1 billion into education technology. Yes, there was a greed factor to that, but Rupert Murdoch is not known to be that uh, inclined to care about the educational process in our, in the United States of America. He invested a billion dollars into a company called Amplify and he hired Joel Klein, who was the former chancellor of the New York City school systems to be a, essentially his, his, uh, educational shill, his front man for this company. Um, and there were a lot of people that were concerned about somebody that's so politically, uh, involved and so involved in our mass media to be not only involved in our educational system so profoundly, but to be also uh, data mining um, because the tablets that they were creating had uh, iris tracking recognition software that would track what children were looking at, uh, where their eyes were moving. It was all very big brother type stuff. Um, so I, I, I don't think a lot of this is accidental. Uh, I, I think a lot of this is by design and, and that's especially, you know, but, to be accepted into sort of the mainstream dialogue, we, uh, you know, I think um, we have to be a little bit careful about that. But I personally sure. think, think there there is, there is a, a nefarious aspect to this. Sure. <laughs> well, that, one of the aspect or one of the parts of that concept that makes me real curious about it is that you would think um, because the you know aside from the nefarious side of this technology and what it's you know dopaminergic effects and, and the fact that it's um, addictive, uh, it really is incredible. You know, we have this almost like Star Trek technology where we can access pretty much any piece of information from the planet. Um, yeah. 
Now, yeah. you know, granted, if you set aside the whole issue of misinformation on the internet and all of that, you really like, you have the ability to access so much information. And you would think that, it, uh, in pace with that, people would be uh, taking advantage of it and becoming more intelligent, more informed, able to do their own research, self-educated, that these things would go in parallel with that increase in technology. But when you look at it, it seems to be going in the opposite direction. Um, right. And, you know, not to put too simplistic of a of a, a point on it, but it, it feels like people are getting dumber as the technology is becoming more incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that that's that's exactly right. It seems to be an inverse ratio, right? It seems the more technology advances, the more we as a species recede. And I talk about that a little bit in our, our book. Once we, the more we use technology as a crutch, the more uh, things like our own memory, and reason become vestigial organs. The more we atrophy as a species because the crutch becomes we become more and more dependent. I talk about the basic concept of memory and how. You know, nobody has to memorize phone numbers anymore. And, you know, 20 years ago, we all used to remember about 10 or 15 telephone numbers, you know, our closest friends, our family members. And now, if you ask most people to write down five phone numbers of people that they know, they can't. Because uh, memory is also a, a muscle that needs to be developed. That technology has softened that for us. I, I totally agree with you with this idea that as technology advances, humanity recedes. Um, and... You know, it's, 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 you know, you mentioned Star Trek. It's so funny they mentioned that because I, I opened up my book by outing myself as a Trekkie. You know, when I was a kid, <laughs> I loved Star Trek. I would watch Captain Kirk and Spock fly to the ends of the universe. And I longed for, and I write about this in my book, I wished for, you know, the future of Star Trek to arrive. I used to make, in my fifth grade class, I used to make these little communicators out of paper and make believe I was Captain <laughs> Kirk. And, and as I write in my book, be careful what you wish for, because a lot of that technology is here, uh, but with a, with a huge, huge price. I call it a Faustian deal. And what we are discovering is what you've said, that information and technology doesn't equal wisdom. Uh, what we're lacking is a lot of wisdom. What we're gaining is information. And information, unfortunately, doesn't lead to anything other than data. And uh, and we don't seem to be getting wiser as a species. We seem to be... Um, getting dumbed down unfortunately uh, so well dr k i wanted to ask you more about your background i watched an interesting ted talk that you gave uh i forget when it was but i watched it last night and you were talking about an experience that you had that showed you how important it is to have purpose and meaning in your life because a lot of addiction is basically seeking purpose and meaning so can you share a little bit more about that? Right, sure. In my uh, in my prior life, I think I, I had a, what I guess some people would call an existential crisis. I had a loss of purpose and meaning in my life. And one of the reasons why I became an addiction psychologist is I, I did develop an addiction in my own life. And, um, and for me, it was, you know, looking for love or looking for meaning in all the wrong places. And if you have a meaning void in your life, I call it the void, Sometimes drugs and alcohol can become a very convenient way to fill the void. Um, that addiction in my life led to uh, an almost uh, fatal situation where I was in a coma for uh, two weeks. And it was emerging out of that, I would call it a transformative experience, that I realized that that's sort of the name of the game, um, that meaning and purpose seems to be part of our 
psycho-spiritual DNA, and that if we don't have that, that a lot of bad things can happen to people, that a lot of uh, people can drift in very unhealthy ways. And so when I came out of my near-death experience, I didn't have the traditional white light experience, so I can't say that, you know, I... I saw old family members, I saw God, I can't say anything like that. I can tell you that I came out of the coma and I experienced something different, just a profound shift in uh, that I needed to align my life to something much more important and meaningful, which led me to go back to graduate school and become a psychologist to help people. But it also made me very tuned in to the importance of meaning and purpose, what Viktor Frankl used to talk about in Man's Search for Meaning. And, and that's what I started also seeing that many people who did have addictive problems lack that and that many of our young people today lack that and that in that void is where the escape comes in, the digital escape, the substance escape, the behavioral escapes. And so the antidote isn't to really necessarily demonize the substances, but to really help the person find a sense of meaning and purpose uh so that they're not as vulnerable to some of those traps. Now, that's for a more developed young person. I think, you know, at age five or six, that child's not necessarily looking for meaning and purpose. That child just needs to let their brain develop, and we need to leave them alone so they can develop far enough so they can find the meaning and purpose in their lives. You know, the average five-year-old isn't asking, what's my purpose? What am I here for? But But when you get a little older, you do. But the problem is if we developmentally damage that child so they can't even get to that place where they can be reflective because they're too busy escaping down the digital wormhole. Uh, that's when we have a, a society of let's of soma, uh, of the, the digital malaise, as I call it. It's a digital malaise of uninformed, uninterested, uninteresting young people who are just chasing a feel-good experience or an escapist experience. <laughs> Well, I'm interested. Well, Dr. K, I had. Oh, go on. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Erica. No, I, you, you go. <laughs> I was going to switch gears, so you, you go ahead if you were kind of following up. No, I was going to switch gears as well. So let's see if we're <laughs> okay. going in the same direction. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask actually because I, a lot of what we're talking about is sort of um, in kind of the more uh, video game aspects and that that. Um, you know, things that are, are clearly designed to get a person hooked and kind of keep them playing. But I'm, I'm wondering about things like, uh, like social media right. um, or, you know, th- something that maybe like our listeners can, uh, you know, relate to a little more because I, I don't know if, they're, if, if most of our listeners are really active gamers or anything. I wouldn't think so. So um, I, I, I'm curious if, if, you know, maybe the, the more uh, the, the implications of stuff that, uh, that is relatively new um, but that that you know adults are using. Yes, it's funny to me. Social media is as oxymoronic as military intelligence, um, <laughs> because it's it, what we're finding is that that's another sort of mischaracterization. You know, again, we all know that we're our DNA hard drives us to be social animals. We're social creatures, and so if you throw in something called social media, it should lead to some positive outcomes. We should be happy campers because we're the most connected, digitally connected species that's ever lived. And yet we know Mm -hmm. that depression rates are skyrocketing. The World Health Organization says that depression by 2020 is going to be the number two disabling chronic condition uh, that we have. Uh, We know that that 
the, uh, the social media effect, and there's been a lot of research to show this, the more, they're called hyper-networkers, the more of a social media plugged-in person you are, the worse the mental health and behavioral outcomes. Um, Case Western University did a lot of the research in this, and they found and a, a hyper-networker, somebody who's on social media more than three hours a day, which, by the way, by a lot of young people's standards, that's kind of a mild, it's, it's almost a mild use of social media. But so we're finding that the, the, the social connection that, that happens digitally, it's, it becomes, it's almost a counterfeit social connection. It doesn't really seem to satisfy our deep need for a uh, real social connection. Um, the anthropologist uh, Dunbar, uh, years ago, had come up with what was called the Dunbar number. He had studied uh, primate grooming uh, groups. And, excuse me, excuse me, um, had a sneeze coming up there. Apologies. <laughs> but he had studied the uh, grooming, uh, primate grooming groups. Thank you. And he had found that uh, primates clustered in the same numbers that humans do. And that typically the average primate, the average human, um, can hold in our minds, in our social lives, about 150 contacts, social acquaintances. But we needed about three to five close interpersonal friends to be emotionally and mentally healthy. And that absent that, you know, we, there's been a lot of research that what happens to people in social isolation, they, they literally go insane. Uh, they get a lot of physiological effects. And that work was done by Dr. Hebb in the 1950s, where people were, were going insane in social isolation within 72 hours. But what happened is it seemed that the social connection that we were forming through the digital landscape wasn't fulfilling those social needs that we have for human contact. So the Dunbar number of, you know, three to five people, if I have 500 Facebook friends, they're not serving the social needs that I have. And what we found out is that, in fact, we have the Facebook depression effect. And and that was that was ascribed to two different reasons. The Facebook depression effect was, one, it was theorized that it was the comparison effect that, you know, the more, you know, because let's face it, on Facebook, we don't post our pictures when we're, frustrated or struggling or depressed, we post our happier facades on Facebook. Here's me on my vacation, mm. smiling and happy. And so if I'm having a bad day and I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed and I'm seeing vacation shots of my happy friends, it amplifies my own, God, my life sucks uh, effect. Mm. And so there's, that's one aspect of it. And the other part of it is they, they studied people that the more time they spent on social media, they would test them afterwards. And the more depressed they would be because they found that it was an empty use of their time. It didn't really fill their, their human social needs in the way that they thought. And they also found that with adolescents and young people, the more time, the more people's time people spent either hyper networking or hyper texting, the more uh, the negative behavioral aspects they had, the more likely they were to be engaged in drug and alcohol behavior and uh, multiple sex partners and acting out uh, conduct episodes. Um, and so it just seemed that there was a, a negative aspect to this uh, so-called social connection that we were forming because it was giving us the illusion of social connection, but really essentially robbing us of real interpersonal human connections. So people were making less eye contact. And that was the other thing that was really uh, important. They, there was research that shows that for a face-to-face -face interaction to be what's considered uh, psychologically and socially meaningful, eye contact needs to be maintained, they had found 70% of that interaction. And what they were finding now was that teenagers were 
making eye contact 30% of the time in their social interactions. Uh, and that's important. The, the eye contact is the, the human to human resonance, the, uh, the effect that needs to be happening. You don't get that on Facebook. You don't get a pat on the back on Facebook. You don't get, that was the other thing that Dunbar, the uh, anthropologist of the primates found, uh, primate grooming was a very emotionally important part of primate culture because of touch and touch released certain endorphins uh, that were critically important. Uh, I, 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 you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I, I tap your knee, you tap mine. Touch was really important and we weren't touching each other anymore through social media. Um, so the, the, there were those negative impacts. And what we found too is that the impacts of social media were sort of along a, a gender divide. It seemed that the adverse effects of the digital landscape that gaming tended to fall on the boy side of the equation and social media tended to impact, uh, the female side of the equation. Um, kind of like men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Um, hmm. and, and, and for a variety of reasons, you know, I think social media feeds into certain uh, nurturing and, and sort of social tendencies of young females. And it, it, and unfortunately, it also amplifies certain negative effects of young females with like the, the mean girl effect. The mean girl effect mm-hmm. and cyberbullying gets vastly amplified by social media. So 20 years ago, if you were a quote unquote mean girl that was bullying your, your friend Susie at the cafeteria table next to you, okay, well, that had its impact. But now you can, you can, you know, go viral with, with, with some taunts. And next thing you know, there, there's 10,000 students that, that have seen your taunts. And that amplification is what's led to this, by the way, uh, an explosion of adolescent suicide as well. So that's the dark side of social media. Hmm. Boy, it makes me think about this is a happy conversation. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> referencing back to what I had mentioned earlier about the uh, compulsory school compulsory schooling system, yeah. and uh, we've talked in the past about uh, the work of John Taylor Gatto. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very interesting character, but he has a phrase that I think that he kind of coined, it, which is artificially extended childhood. Uh, and yeah. the idea that, uh, yeah. that, that, you know, say, give or take, uh, you know, anywhere from 80 to 100 years ago, um, you were a mature, responsible, uh, you know, working adult, uh, by the time you were like 16 years old, 16, 17 years old, and right. perhaps even younger in certain cases. And now people are not reaching that level of maturity until, you know, their mid, late 20s, early 30s. Um, even if later, in some cases. If, if, if then, absolutely. I talk about that in the book as well, that, that failure to launch syndrome, right? Yeah. Um, well, That's what I was going to ask, is that, do you think that the screen addiction is contributing to that phenomena? Well, absolutely. Um, oh, what was his name? Uh, uh, famous psychologist, too, wrote, wrote about this as well and, and included uh, gaming for the young male failure to launch syndrome. Um, Absolutely, because let's face it, if you're, if you're a young male and what's going to dampen your developmental process? Well, any kind of addiction, whether, you know, if you're in your mother's basement smoking pot or playing a video game or doing heroin, you know, you're not going to fully mature, uh, in the way that you should because you're, you're being stunted. You're, you're, you're stuck. You no, know, any addiction will keep a person stuck. And so 
I definitely think that this a big aspect of this failure to launch syndrome where we're seeing uh, 35-year-old quasi-adolescents living in their parents' basements. And, and I, I know that there's socioeconomic factors in the job marketplace and all that that can contribute to some of this. But I think the the other end of that spectrum is true as well, that there are certain uh, conditions that have led that young person to be less compromised and being able to find a job because of their their own instant gratification uh, tendencies, you know, because let's face it, gaming uh, and any kind of addiction is, is, is an impulse control disorder that feeds into instant gratification. Uh, well, you know, a, 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 a 25 or 30 year old that gets instantly gratified by playing or, or feeding into any addiction, they're not going to have the patience or the resilience to go out and extend a job search and fill out resumes and, and, and go office to office and knocking on doors because they're used to pushing a button plus it, you know, uh, game on, reset, and playing another game. Mm. And so it's a very toxic sort of loop. Conversely, though, even though that there we have these 35-year-old adolescent, you know, man boys, they've also... What I found shocking, I've worked with 16-year-olds who have seen things that you and I have can't even imagine in terms of graphic, violent, or sexual content. There are websites out there. I, I was doing a 16-year-old gaming group, and they were warning me not to go on a particular website. They had just watched a, a dismemberment and decapitation videos. Let's face it, you can access any horrific scene you want to right now at the Tip of your fingertips, and 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 kids know how to bypass all the security filters. And they had seen, and the one young man said to me, "I can't get these horrific images out of my head." And then he would say to me, "Doctor Cardaris, please don't go on that website. You won't be able to unsee what you've seen." Mm-hmm. So, so they're they're thirty five year old man boys, but paradoxically, they've also seen things that we can't even imagine at at, at very precocious ages which has a, a weird effect. So they're, they're living in mom's basement, but they've seen horror things that we can't even visualize, nor do we want to visualize, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, generally those kind of things were, you know, of course, we would say nobody in, in, in humanity should ever have to see something like that, you know, whether it be uh, in a video or, or in war. Uh, you know, or in, uh, in, in, in interpersonal violence and things like that. So we would hope that it would never happen, but yeah, I agree. The idea that, uh, that people who are, you know, developmentally stunted who have access to that kind of thing, um, you know, it's, it's almost like it's creating, uh, PTSD, uh, in in an environment, uh, which not commensurate to that. It's like when somebody comes back from a war, or if somebody has grown up in like a, a, a you know a, a gang situation with a lot of right. violence in the right. or something like that, you can understand where their PTSD would come from. Um, right. In these cases, it's like suburbanite kids, you know, who have who have grown up without any real hardship in their lives, but they're getting PTSD from this input from the right. media input. It's right. like and, a and, push and, and, and pull. Right, and they show the same hypervigilant features as a PTSD as a trauma victim. Some of these kids, that's what, and that's kind of what they, that sometimes gets misdiagnosed as ADHD, that twitchy, hyperkinetic, unable to sit still. That's, that's the hypervigilance that we see with PTSD where kids are very jumpy and they're very sort of, uh, they don't have a sense of calm about them because of that stimulation. But, you know, you reminded me when you talked about the war piece, you know, talking about the nefarious aspects of some of this technology, 
you know, they used to talk about back, back in the 1930s and 40s, uh, war films, you know, that used to kind of help ramp up the, uh, volunteerism for the army. Uh, we know, we know that the military is using, you know, part of some of the recruitment centers are, if you go to some recruitment centers, they look like de facto uh, uh, video game uh, parlors. Um, they they have uh, Call of Duty and, and tank commander type games, and 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 I've worked I worked with one young man. He played Call of Duty for a marathon stretch for seventy two hours one weekend. He came in to see me on a Monday, and he said, "I did it. I signed up. I signed up for the Marines this morning." And I said, "Well, you did what?" And he said, "I signed up for the Marines." Because I was really amped up, and, and, and now I can go do the real thing. And I said, you know, there's no off button on that thing, right? You know that once you go there, and um, and you know, so it's this idea that we are also desensitizing a large population of our young boys slash men to war experiences, to combat experiences, and so it's just been a natural extension for them to actually then become real soldiers and and go do the real thing, as they say sometimes. So. That's problematic, obviously, as well. Well, this is kind of a depressing topic, but <laughs> I wanted to um, get your thoughts on what you think the future might hold. Do you think that we're completely ruined as a species? I'm, I can't think of any way that we can turn back the clock on a lot of this technology that's coming out. And you've written about, like, what you... Uh, what your protocol is for detoxing, like a digital detox? But what are what are your thoughts on the future? Is there is there any way around this? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, obviously the genie's been let out of the bottle, and I don't think we're going to go to a Luddite Amish-like society. Although maybe that, you know, maybe that will happen at some point. You know, by you know after the. Uh, after the big uh, problems really arise. But I think now with the growing awareness that, that the pendulum is beginning to shift in the sense where people are beginning to become more aware. And I, I analogize a lot of this back to sort of the smoking industry, the smoking ca- awareness campaign. You know, back in the 1940s and 50s, smoking wonderful was pop- part of our popular culture. Everybody in the movie had a cigarette in their mouths. The cigarette companies by the 1950s knew that there were carcinogens. It took some class action lawsuits. It took some public awareness to eventually scale back our habits and our behaviors around smoking. Uh, I think similarly, by raising some awareness with some of the digital effects, no one's saying to get rid of our technological world, but to become aware, like with cigarettes, that this is not without consequence. And we don't want to have certainly our youngest and most vulnerable exposed to it. And if we can begin to um, start limiting exposure, age of onset exposure, create this awareness and and use it more judiciously, more thoughtfully, then there's I think there's hope. And I think part of the pendulum shift back is to also really appreciate the importance, the uh the importance of, of real life nature experiences, um real life immersion in the quote unquote real world, um and, and to begin to create that balance. Uh, in the way that's important, both in school settings and in home settings. Um, so th- there, there is hope that this has maybe peaked and that maybe with some, you know, conversations like the ones that we're having now, people begin to think more before they drop the tablet into the crib, as I say. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and uh, and and so yeah, I, I am an optimist by nature. You know, as you said, this could be a depressing conversation. It's because I'm an optimist that I'm trying to fight this fight and raise the awareness that I think is so critically important because it is it's it's a culture defining issue. It's it's what are we going to look like as a species in 30 years if we continue to are we going to all be wearing holographic headsets, walking around in the virtual world, living on Second Life, which, which by the way, can be one of the trajectories. If you go watch the mm-hmm. TED Talk of uh, oh, Alex Crickman. Alex Crickman is the guy that invented the HoloLens. And he's, and, and again, I'm not, but he's got this very Germanic accent, so I'm not making any, but, but he's very, very, um, and he looks like a mad scientist. He's got the long, greasy hair. And he is, talks like a crazy man about a future world where we will all interact with in the virtual holographic <laughs> landscape. That's his vision, man. This guy's vision is to have us all living, you know, in this. And in and, and, and some perverse way, if you watch his TED Talk, he says that somehow it's going to bring us closer to our humanity if we're all wearing these headsets. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's perverse and it's bizarre and it scared me, the bejesus out of me when I saw because this is the guy that's this is the guy that's driving the bus. This is the guy that's driving the digital bus for Microsoft. Um, so huh. so there's that piece of it. So, they, so some of these mad scientists that are trying to sort of create you know the choices for our families and our children. So I just think you know the more awareness we have about some of this, the more we're, we're able to on a grassroots level have some pushback. But you know that's why in my book I have a screen opt out letter. You know you. Give this to your school district, and you say, "I don't want my kid to have a tablet until he's in sixth grade." Um, mm-hmm. Don't give my first grader a screen. I, and and here's a list of the clinical reasons why. And I have the right of, as a parent to request that my child be taught in the traditional manner. Um, so I, and I'm having a lot of a lot of support from uh, literally hundreds uh, of groups around the country that are beginning to push back with their schools and the technology companies and our and are petitioning and are writing and are getting active about this cause because I do think it's an important cause to not passively accept but to begin to fight back over. Yeah, I noticed that in your um, book and I watched some of your other interviews that you've done uh, on television and I just wanted to get some feedback from you on parents and you know i noticed and i can't remember which actual show you were on where the woman said well isn't this a bunch of scaremongering you're just scaremongering parents and um i I found your book so helpful in the sense as you've been sharing on this show today about the reality of of the brain effects and and all the aspects of it but i'm interested um the feedback you've gotten as far as uh, since you published this book last year. And uh, I know you had shared before the show about some legislation and maybe you can share with our uh, listeners about things that are happening as a, as a response to, to you putting out this, this information. But right. well, 99% of the emails and calls that I've gotten have been overwhelmingly supportive parents that have said, yes, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you for my, and, and then, and then I get the horror stories. I've gotten, I, I can't tell you the number of horror stories I've gotten. My nine year old this, my eight year old changed the, that, you know, the, the, the horrific stories of, of, of well-intentioned parents who listened to their schools or to their pediatrician and then had some horrible outcome with their, uh, young child. And, and by the way, to that, I will say, yeah, I am scaremongering. Yes, 
I want to scare parents awake about this issue because it's a scary issue. Um, you, you know, it's like saying, are you scaremongering about cigarettes and lung cancer? Yeah, it's a scary issue. Um, it's interesting, but overwhelmingly uh, amazing amount of support, both nationally and internationally. You know, I've been asked to speak in this, uh, from every, everywhere from all over this country to uh, they're going to New Zealand to do a three-city speaking tour in New Zealand because they're in their uh, school systems because they're very tuned into some of the, the effects of this, these problems. But the, but the media, big big media, you know, this is always a message. I mean, I've gotten a lot of national exposure, but it was interesting. I was on them. They had me on Good Morning America, and they had pre-recorded my interview uh, in studio the, the day before. And then they had their uh, they had their own medical expert, Doctor Besser, sort of contradict me because you know I, I've been using this narrative of of digital heroin that this is as addictive as heroin. And so w- without allowing me to sort of you know r- rebut. Uh, Dr. Vester thought, thought that it was overstating the, the, the issue and that, well, you know, in light of the opiate epidemic with all the mortality rates to be calling it digital heroin was, was excessive on my part. You know, I would have responded had I had the opportunity to be in studio with their rebuttal to say that I'm not saying that this is going to have the mortality rates of heroin. I'm certainly not saying I, I work with uh, opiate addicts. I, I, I run the drug and alcohol rehab, I don't take the opiate epidemic lightly. But because I don't take the opiate epidemic lightly, I do think that this is another manifestation of an addictive disorder. Uh, it, it absolutely affects the brain neurologically the same way as an addictive substance. Obviously, without the same uh, potential for o- fatal overdose, but is it addicting to your child? Absolutely. And uh, and so I've been embraced uh, enormously by by a lot of uh, grassroots parenting groups. I, I mentioned to you before we spoke about the one mother in uh, Maryland who got legislation uh, that's going, that's winding its way through the Maryland state legislature to limit screen time in schools. Um, her name is uh, Cindy Eckhart, and, and that could be a potential model for other states if that it becomes successful legislation for other states to then begin to pull back rain back the screens and the tablets in the school and the classroom. Um, there's, I've been contacted by a couple of class action lawsuit uh, attorneys that want to file class action lawsuits against some of the technology companies, uh, essentially saying that they, they were aware of some of these clinical effects. And the end result that I'd like to have is I'd like to see warning labels on screens. And the warning label would say excessive screen usage can lead to clinical disorders in children. Um, and I think that's factually incontrovertible. Um, but obviously that's not something that the screen companies would, would like to have, but it's something that I think is necessary and will eventually happen. So yeah, those are some of the, some of the pulse that I've been getting back from a lot of people. Then of course I do get, you know, I do get some of the gamers that are deep in the gaming bunker who have attacked me, who have, uh, you know, because essentially I'm attacking their religion. If you're, some of these gamers are very deep in, deep in the bunker and, uh, and I'm not singing a tune that they like to hear. And so, um, but as I said, I'm not against technology per se. Uh, and if you're, you know, uh, I think, I don't know if I edit or edit it out of the book, but I, I had said originally in the original draft of my book, if you're past pimple popping age and you want a game, go ahead. <laughs> Go go ahead, game away. I'm a libertarian, but don't expose it to the five, eight, nine, and ten year olds because they don't have a choice in this yet. 
But if you're over 17 or 18 and you want to sit in your mom's basement and game away, have at it. Yeah, well, this is technically a free will universe. I I think that there might be like a split, like people who choose reality and people who don't. And I think that might come across in a lot of different aspects, not just this technology aspect. But I wanted to ask you, since we're coming up close to uh, the time for our show, if you could like give your digital detox treatment protocol, like how you would go about it, not just for children, but for adults who want to kind of get away from uh, tablets and social media and they want to uh, unplug from the matrix, so to say. Right. So the only thing that does work is to unplug for a period of four to six weeks. That's how much time it takes for your adrenal system to recalibrate itself and to really reset. Uh, Dr. Victoria Dunkley in her book, Reset Your Child's Mind, it's Your Child's Brain, rather, um, talks about it's, she does it as a cold turkey digital detox. Um, my recommendation is a little bit more gradual because I'm an addictions. A specialist, we tend to detox people gradually rather than abruptly because you tend to see more of the explosive, aggressive behavior when you cold turkey someone, even an eight-year-old. Um, mm. uh, a, a lot of people that we've worked with have had, you know, violent, uh, I'll say violent, aggressive children. When you take away the computer, the first 24 to 48 hours are where you see holes getting punched in walls or things getting thrown. If you, if you do it gradually, what I recommend is sort of, you know, cutting back an hour at a time to eventually getting to zero. And then once you get to zero, maintaining abstinence for four weeks, and then you get the same effect. But, but the key is, is not just taking away the screen. The key is to replace that with something real world experience. So you don't just take away your child's computer and let them sit in the room staring at the wall. You have to then, you know, take them to the park. Or, or, or have them paint or draw or create music or, or join an after-school club or do something. That's the key. The key is replace the digital behavior with some real-life experiences rather than just take away the digital experience and then just have them sit there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had good results with that, and kids who have done that have done well. Uh, I, in, in Just to be totally uh, transparent, it doesn't always work. Um, we've had... We've had kids, I've had a couple of young people that went away to therapeutic schools for a year where they had no digital exposure. And once they got back home and went back on the screen, they fell right down the rabbit hole again. Um, some hmm. kids, some kids seem to be able to go back to quote unquote normal usage after they've digitally detoxed. And some kids seem to not be able to. So that's a caveat that I'm putting out there ahead of time. Um, this is a brave new world and a brave new addiction that we don't have as much data yet on as we do uh, with things like alcoholism and opiate addiction, where we have very established protocols and guidelines. And, and cause the issue is with something like drugs and alcohol, a person can be entirely abstinent. Um, it's almost impossible to be entirely abstinent of technology in this mm. society. So you can digitally detox a young person and then you have to monitor their reintegration back into uh, technology exposure and if and the ouch point is seeing if the, if that young person starts getting what we call mood dysregulated. So if you give them back a computer for half an hour a day and they seem to be okay with it, then that's fine. Once they go back to an hour a day, do they start getting very aggressive if it gets starts taking getting taken away? That's when you have to say, okay, this is the ouch point. Okay, I I, I need to cap it at forty five minutes, but that takes close monitoring. Um, 
And, and again, the key is to help balance out that young person's life with other types of experiences that that's the Holy Grail in this whole thing. So uh, those, are, those are my suggestions. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. K, for sharing so much with us today. It really is quite frightening and <laughs> overwhelming. And I'm, a I just, scare, I'm, I'm, I'm a scare monger, but <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> we tend to do that sometimes. <laughs> it's reality. <laughs> <laughs> do any of our co-hosts have anything else they'd like to ask Dr. K before we let him continue on his journey of sharing this information far and wide? And no. No, I guess I, I would just, Dr. K, I would just say thank you for the work that you do, and it's very important. And, uh, um, you know, just I don't know how often you hear that from people. I'm sure you do in your in your work day to day, but uh, I have some experience with addiction myself and I have friends who have as well. And people that do your kind of work are vitally important uh, to our culture and society. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I yes, appreciate I, that. Thank you. I agree. And um, for anyone who's interested, Dr. Carderis's book is called Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trance. And it is well worth a read, um, as you were saying, not just if you're a parent, but just li- living in this, you know, brave new e-world, how, mm-hmm. to, how to cope and unplug and take opportunities to walk outside and get grounded and use your active imagination, have balance. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Dr. K? Just uh, be careful of the glow and uh, thank, <laughs> thank you for having me on. I really do appreciate the opportunity. Thank you again. Yeah, and please um, follow up at any articles that you write or new information that you come out. We would love to share it on Signs of the Times. We have a whole health and wellness section in addition to Society's Child and Puppet Masters in Science and Technology. So we we like to get this information out to our listeners and our readers because it helps us navigate as things get more and more trekky out there. <laughs> <laughs> More and more tricky. Well put. Well <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening in, and please tune in to Sunday's show. Another interesting topic to be determined. <laughs> and um, we will see you all next week. Have a great Friday. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye, bye. Thank you.